A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Mist Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Mist Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. We're dropping in midweek to update you on some things. So we're going to find out if there's been any movement in Felipe Massa becoming the rightful champion or whatever of 2008. And we'll also see where we think Andretti's bid is in the legal process and what might happen next. And we're going to lean on lawyer Peter Wright to help us with that. But first, Matt and I will be looking forward to the next race and asking, will Las Vegas F1 be rubbish or not? But first, let me remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. And joining me to decide whether Las Vegas is going to be rubbish or not, an American, Matt, two rumpets. Hey, Matt. I did not know Pirelli sold round popsicles. Yeah, so it's going to be cold, man. So look, obviously you have the reputation as the guy who is uh, obsessed with tires. And this is this is the key thing to me, is that we are going to be running late at night with possibly single digit or close temperatures in the form of Celsius. So like 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 10 degrees Celsius, which is sort of unheard of, I think, in Formula One. So obviously I had to grab you for a bit of a, a Las Vegas preview. But we'll also be discussing why I'm not there, what the chances are of some decent racing, the track layout. Now we've both had a proper look at it, the time zones and all the rest of it. So why don't we start, though, Matt? Let's fire into this track temperatures thing. Are the tyres going to work? Well, I, I hate to disappoint everybody, but outside of a very particular set of circumstances, most likely to be found at the very beginning of the race, yeah, they're going to work. And, and here's why. Everyone's been very focused on the actual temperatures in Las Vegas. Now, I, I've gone and looked at the forecast for Friday night, 
Saturday morning qualifying and the following for the race. And it looks like mainly we're talking 12 to 14 C, which is 54 to 58 in freedom units. And, and while that is cold, we've actually had races that were colder, um, notably Nürburgring, the Eiffel Grand Prix in um, 2020. Right. The ambient mm. temperatures were 10 and the track temperatures were only 15 C. So we have seen cars working. And the thing to remember about this is everyone got focused on these very low temperatures and being at nighttime, but that track is going to be sitting out in the desert sunshine all day long, absorbing solar radiation. So the track will be warmer than the ambient temperatures. But even if it wasn't, remember, these tires live in tire warmers right up until they get chucked onto the car. Two hours, 70 C, yet throw them on the car, out the car goes. They're not going to drop to ambient temperatures by the time they get to the end of the okay. pit lane. All right. But the, those two you mentioned, the Eiffel Grand Prix, where was that? Yep. Where was that? Uh, that was in uh, that was in 2020 at yeah. the Nurburgring. Right. Okay. So Nurburgring is uh, the Grand Prix circuit is quite yeah. is it quite f- uh, front limited? If we talk about that, there's a lot of corners where you're under high load, long hairpins, uh, lots of chicanes. So that that might have given much more of an opportunity for the tires to warm up. Now we had a look at some onboards of the track layout. And like, wow, it is, it is like the first sector of Baku twice <laughs> with the big long straights, n- nearly nothing where you're going to be leaning on the front tires. So lots of traction zones, but where are they going to get temps into the front? Uh, well, obviously breaking into the slow quarters um, for the, and, and the fast turns, the fast high speed turns. But I, I think it's worth noting that Pirelli has prescribed sort of unusually high pressures. I want to say like 24.5 and 27.5 by memory. I mean, these are like road car pressures. And the other thing to... No, no, no wait, 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 wait. What do, what, yeah, what, what, why is that good or bad? <laughs> Basically, you're saying to me these pressure stuff, and I see you having lots of conversations in our private WhatsApp uh, yeah. with the other guys about, oh, the tire pressures have dropped. I can't believe it. And I'm like... Uh, it's been so long now that I, I was too afraid to ask. I'll do it here. I don't really know what that does. Well, it essentially makes the tire stiffer so that there is less flex, especially in the sidewall. And the reason we see them this high, and it's the same reason why they're high at Silverstone, for example, that's why they even had to bring this new tire in, is that when you go through a high-speed turn, you're putting so much energy into that tire that if the pressures were low, the tire would flex and wobble a lot and potentially fail at the sidewall in the construction, in other words. Okay. So Pirelli, in order to protect themselves and to protect the drivers, because obviously the last thing you want is a tire failing at 300 kilometers an hour through a turn, is, is they run the pressures up to be sure that the tires will stay intact throughout the entire lap. Now, one of the side effects of that is it makes the amount of the tire that touches the road less, which means you're putting more energy into a smaller thing, which actually adds to the heat a little bit. But there are other there are other tricks. But the thing that I want to point out, though, is really what springs to mind is, do you remember the race in Australia this year? Yeah, the, the, the race of the many flags. The, and, and at the end... They did, they did a standing start 
and the the tires had gotten cold because they'd been sat in the pit lane for the red flag. Yeah. <laughs> and they did the standing <laughs> and start and everybody got to the first corner and not everybody figured out how to stop the car on those cold tires. If there's going to be a problem that's not caused by a red flag, I fully expect the start to be where that happens because the cars mm. are going to go around pretty slowly and sit for a long time and they're going to be heavy and full of fuel. The brakes are going to be cooling. The tires are going to be cooling. So really, the start of the race is, I think, where we see the wow. most jeopardy based on tire temperature. I think once they get up and moving, they will be okay. And certainly coming out of the pits, they should have enough temperature left in the tires that they that they give enough grip to be safe. So actually, Haas and Alfa Romeo have got a huge part to play here, because if they take a long time to take up their positions at the back of the grid, that's going to really affect the guys at the front. So finally... Finally, they can have an effect on the race. So I, I don't know. I so you're being quite optimistic. They've they've uh, they, they've said okay, high tire pressure. What's the disadvantage of that? I guess is less grip because uh, well, yeah, less contact patch. So 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 less grip and less flexibility. So it's, it it okay. is harder to work the tires a bit. Okay, at the higher pressure. So to me, that feels then. Like that's not going to help anything when you talk about a, a cold track. So is this really dumb to say a colder temperature in general on the track will give you less grip or more grip? Um, but less heat. Wow, that's a really, uh, <laughs> but less heat. It, it, so the tires won't work it, as well. It makes it harder to keep the. It, it, at a certain point, it makes it hard to keep the tires in the window, especially. Again, the other thing to look out for is if people try to run really long stints. As the rubber comes off the tire and sort of just mechanically being being degraded by the asphalt, it gets harder to keep the core of the tire temperature up. And again, if you slip out of that zone, then suddenly where you normally break for turn one, which is which will be the biggest problem after all those really long straights, you're going to break there and you're going to turn and it just it, nothing's going to happen. Because the tires will have will will not have enough temperature to grip in the manner you expect, and there's not a lot of forgiveness in into turn one. There, there's not a lot of runoff. So there's a there's a load of unknowns here. So we really won't know as we get into FP one because it's a brand new track surface, and and that can go either way. So we got to Sochi when it when it first became a race track after the Olympics in Sochi, and yeah. we, they found that basically the surface didn't wear the tires at all so they got to a point where nico rosberg he pitted for hards i think in that inaugural race after his lockup so he pitted on the first lap and then did the rest of the race at the same pace as everybody else on his hards absolutely no problem and finished second so you don't really know until you get to it what kind of wear you're going to have so there's much more than just the temperature the the track surface is going to play a big part yeah, and I know a big chunk of it has been repaved for the Grand Prix. What but could go wrong? Un un unlike with the unlike with the sprint races, they're going to have three full practice True. sessions here to understand what's going on. And even for the teams that struggle with tire warm up, there's there's suspension tricks you can play. You can play with the amount of brake and and rim heating that you use. All these things can be helpful to a greater or lesser extent dealing with it that said if they do fall out for any reason either there's a red flag and they have to sit around a long time or if um you know uh if you take if you go for a super long stent 
then yeah, we we could see some issues, but but on the whole, I don't think we're going to be out of. I don't think we're looking at a track temperature of like five C. No, it's not going to be no. like at Barcelona when it snowed and 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 no one could run because it was zero C outside. It's not going to be that that bad. The forecast I saw for the race, so Saturday night in America, is right. something like ten degrees Celsius, which is what forty Fahrenheit, and you go well. In that case, I've always been told that you can't run in, say, the UK. You can't run in the UK in autumn because it would be, you know, far too cold. But it's 12 degrees Celsius today. So doesn't that just throw that argument out the window now? So now that we can go in Vegas in those kind of temperatures, why is the European season completely restricted to May, June, July, August? Um, I would add rain to that cold, oh, and then that right. would probably you throw be the wide. the rain in our face. Yeah, it yes, has been has been pretty miserable today. And the thing is, like we're we're used to the rain, but surely you know we want rain. So there you go. If you want a rainy Silverstone, if you want a rainy British Grand Prix, basically schedule it for October or November, and you're guaranteed misery. But instead. They do it on the one hot day of the year that Britain gets so that everyone in the crowd sits there and absolutely cooks um, whilst drinking lager. Yeah. And the other thing I should just add here is they are also bringing the softest of the compounds. So, again, you're going to have maximum help with the grip. I think what's unknown is running that super duper long straight. Some people may have issues with their fronts, but by the time we get to the race... And even qualifying, they should have done enough running to understand the parameters they have to deal with, both the drivers and the teams. All right. So there's one scenario where they get there, the track surface doesn't really have any abrasive effect on the tires, but yeah, it's a bit cold and slippy. So I think that's our worst case scenario for for the race is that there's no wear, so we don't get any tyre strategy, but also the tyres don't really work, so we get a lot of field spread. And I think this is my next big fear, is these are very challenging circumstances. And yes, you're right, they'll have three full practice sessions in order to come up to speed, but who is going to overcome those challenges better? It's going to be the top teams, isn't it? So Red Bull will we'll, we'll do it a little bit better than Ferrari and Mercedes, who'll probably have a bit more time and and uh, a bit more success in overcoming that than Williams. So my fear is that overcoming all these problems, instead of just concentrating on the optimum performance on a sunny day in, in, in Silverstone, what you're going to have is massive field spread. So I'm going to make a prediction right now. I think Verstappen laps everyone... Uh, except the podium places. He's going he's gonna to lap P4. That's my prediction. Okay, good. Yeah. Field, that, that, that's not necessarily mine, but... No, but, that, but that's, that's, the, worst, that's the, the worst case scenario for me, is that the field spread makes it massively uncompetitive. So yes, you, you will be able to overtake on those long straights. I assume that that is a DRS zone as well, that the, those straights are DRS zones too, DRS zones. Yeah, there are yeah. two DRS zones, and and I've seen speculation because again we're in a desert, we're at night, that it might actually be really easy for draggier teams to keep up with faster teams oh, with the DRS okay. with the slipstream might actually oh, make things yeah. a bit easier, and and also like uh, the more mechanically minded of my friends have been talking about 
how the colder, denser air might affect the performance of the power unit. So we might see some interesting surprises there, but that's 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 all oh. it's all a lot of speculation right okay now. well you've said you know if you said the opposite of those things if you said thin air then you'd go oh the mercedes struggle because they, they struggle to get cooling in so when you've got thin air they struggle to get enough air to cool yeah. so well the opposite of As that I is google las vegas altitude for you you keep talking oh so is it is it the opposite of of mexico is it very low is that what you're you're driving at? But yeah, so no, I don't think it's yeah. super low. But if you have then a lot of dense air, that is the the opposite of Mercedes Kryptonite, and obviously Mercedes is one of the draggier packages out there as well. So it, also a big thing with Mercedes is, are they going to be able to run the ride height at the proper level to get the results that they had in Circuit of the Americas and at Mexico, where they were able to be kind of a front running team? Whereas in the last Grand Prix, they said, well, we didn't want to risk it. So we, we ended up with, with higher ride heights. So will, that, will the surface allow them to run low enough to get this ground effect working? Because they seem to have made a step forward with ground effect. Uh, yeah, I think that it will. I think a lot of the track has been surfaced, uh, newly surfaced. And when they do that, they, they are pretty strict about how bumpy it is or how uniform yeah. it has to be so that's going to be a help really to all the teams and um i think particularly for mercedes they in brazil they were running into an issue where they were turning a lot and the right height they ran was making their downforce inconsistent because they are worse in the turns and this goes back to the uh, rear suspension and the side impact protection that we talked about them being stuck with the zero pod design back there, basically. And so fundamentally somewhat compromised. Now, interesting, you've noticed how Alpha Tauri has been doing better, right? Mm, yeah, oh, don't. I am. Don't. I'm Have you triggered, noticed that? Yes, I'm triggered by the story because I've, I've just found out why. So basically, okay. they've, well, you'll say Go better ahead. than me, but they've got all the rear suspension parts from, from Red Bull. They the RB19. They just yeah, have them. Last year's. Yeah. They, they just they, have them. Now, what they did was they set up their car at the beginning of the year so they could put these parts on when they got when they got to it. And having put those parts on, suddenly you can see how much farther up the grid they are. Contrast to Haas, who has Ferrari's rear end. And you can see that there is clearly something to the Red Bull rear suspension setup that is giving them a huge advantage in combination with the other aerodynamic parts they have screwed onto the car. They should just do that all the time. They're the same team. There's not two yep. completely separate and independent teams. They're the same team. Orders can go up and down between those teams. Personnel can be swapped between those teams. The drivers are loaned between those teams. They are, they are one four-car team. So I'm surprised this doesn't happen more often. And in fact, for next season, they've already signaled that they're going to use a lot more of the of the Red Bull parts, yeah, a lot more uh, in common. They're, basi they're basically moving to the Haas model mm. with Alpha Tauri, which considering Red Bull is the team selling them all the bits, is is going to be really good for whatever they're going to become next year. Because I think they're, are they not ditching the name too? Yep. Anyway. I think they're becoming Hugo Boss or something like that. I don't think we've yeah. heard quite yet. Okay, so I, I've always been surprised that they don't just yeah. do that more because I've never understood, like, if you've got Yuki Tsunoda and you're lining him up to potentially be a Red Bull driver one day, don't you want him at the sharp end? Don't you want him fighting 
for for higher points. And then when he does go to Red Bull, it's not it's not such a big shock. But they've sort of let that team just meh its way through the last few seasons. Yeah, I, I mean, because there are rules about who can move where and what they can talk about. And then also, you know, for sponsors and, and who knows what the corporate parents really want here. Maybe they wanted Alpha Tauri to forge their own identity or maybe their technical <laughs> team really believed oh. it was better for them to keep things simple. And, and, and rather than like we saw with Aston get completely lost when they borrowed the Mercedes concept borrowed. and they changed the rules a little bit and Aston's were like completely, okay, maybe not the first time that's happened, but okay. you get my point. Actually, that was my first instinct. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah well, Aston Martin co- copied uh, Mercedes and they got pinged for it. Why aren't Alpha Tauri being pinged for it? But I quickly guessed that, uh, well, firstly, Aston Martin didn't ask, did they? They just sort of nicked it with the yeah. brake ducts and the and the the green mercedes or the pink mercedes wasn't it when it was racing yeah. point so that's them looking like using laser scanners or, or looking at images and just trying to get inspiration from it uh, a whole this, lot of stuff got banned <laughs> after that yeah. yeah so this is more like a customer arrangement which is completely legal and above board yeah yeah you'd be happy to know that However else you might decide to impeach the FIA as a regulatory body, they have fairly straightforward standards as to things you have to either own the intellectual property of or design on your own and things you can buy from other teams as suppliers. And there's been a move to allow the midfield teams to buy more stuff to reduce the field spread and make things more yeah, competitive. And, I agree and, with that. and that's not a problem. That's, that's a good thing. But, unless well, the team you're buying them from is Ferrari. Yeah. So obviously you've, you've still got the cost cap. So yeah. if you decide to buy a front wing that's for sale and build your concept around that, I've, there's no real problem with that. Like what, what is to stop Williams saying to, you know, Mercedes. Oh, you're well, that that you do have to design on your own. The front wing for definite. Yeah, I couldn't buy you couldn't buy Mercedes front wing, but you All could right. buy their rear suspension. You okay. could buy their gearbox. Can you buy their side pods? I'd imagine they're going pretty cheap at the moment. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, they don't have them to sell. Exactly. Right? Zero side pods. All right. Zero pods. Yes. So you, you've, you've turned this into a tech time. I was trying to talk about Vegas. No. This is your well, fault. They- you've derailed this. You just ask the question, and, and I, I just okay. I, I can't I can't help it. It just it just naturally <laughs> okay naturally comes so. out. But it, it, I don't know. You want to talk about Vegas? Mm, well, how did we get? What there? do you okay. want to know? I've been there. Have you? Okay. Have you been there? No. And I I wanted oh. to be there, and there was there was scope for us to do activities around I thought F1. We were, I thought that was going to happen. I you fifty know. fifty, and then that just yeah. kept coming down. And then I had a, a moment of hope that we could even, you know, get a proper like access and, you know, it'd be all expenses paid. And, and, but then that, that's fallen through as well. And I'm not going, but that's fine. That does give me the opportunity to go and hang out with uh, Tomo F1 in his yeah. fancy studios in London. So me and Brad are going down there to do a live watch along uh, starting at 5.30 a.m. And so I'll see if I can find the link to that stream and you can you can watch along with me. And then I'll be doing their podcast. Then we'll do our podcast at midday. And then that means, Matt, that you are watching a Grand Prix in your home country that starts at 1 a.m. your time. It might as well be in Australia, if I'm yeah. being honest. But, but this is yeah. crazy. This is this is the crazy part to me. So obviously, like Las Vegas, it has to be at night, which is why we've got the cold temperatures. It has to be at night because 
Las Vegas is your equivalent of Blackpool, which uh, you won't know. You won't have heard of Blackpool Illuminations. I okay. I have. So that's the thing that dads say, and I even said it the other day. I, I went upstairs, and every single bedroom had the light on. And I went, hey, it looks like uh, Blackpool Illuminations up here. I, oh, sorry, Dad. And then I went from room to room. They, they went to run up the stairs. I'm like, no, I'll do it. I went to room to room, turning off lights and tutting loudly and complaining. So that's your Las uh, Vegas. What is a your, joys. It's your version of, of Blackpool. And it's all about the illuminations, the flashing lights, the, the neon. You've got that wonderful sphere thing with the, the, that you can put any of the graphics on. What's that called? Yeah. Is it called the sphere? Uh, the sphere. I think yeah. it's called the sphere. And I, I love it when you, it's got a big smiley face that watches trains and like watches planes. It's really freaky. And apparently F1 have control of that for, uh, for the race as well. Uh, so it will primarily be used for advertising. But that's what they're going for. It has to be at night so that it can be illuminated. But the yeah, sensible... outside of Monaco, are, are like Singapore, yeah. like all these all these races, they like the night races because they look good on yeah. TV. Yeah, so it's a destination Grand Prix. It looks good on TV, but you could also have it a little earlier if you wanted to not have it quite as cold. So, But the reason you can't do that is because F1, as American-owned and a, as, a, as American-centric the drive for new viewers has become... They are still not stupid enough to put on that race when Europeans are asleep. So if you did it a few hours earlier, so that you would it would be a 10 p.m. race for you, and it would be a seven evening race in Las Vegas. Still, it would be two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning for 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 us. So you know, for for Britain at the moment, it's six a.m. For mainland Europe, it is seven a.m. So. They they still will not have it. Well, we are sleeping. So that that I think that's quite telling, and that's how they seem to have got themselves in this fudge. Where yes, it's at night, tick, but the people in their own country on the east coast are asleep. But it does mean that the Europeans can set an alarm at a a somewhat civilized time. It's a real fudge how they've got to to that point. Yeah, it is, and I think I mean I think there's um, there's a bit of a move. Because that that's not an unusual time for, like, say, a college football game out west to be on or a basketball game. I think they're trying to capture a different sports market in that part of the country. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not quite sure what they're up to with this and whether or not it will continue to happen at exactly this time. Mm. But eh, I, I watch enough of them in Australia is bad japan same thing i mean bad from an east coast yeah. point of view time wise not bad in terms of the racing because that's that's pretty good at least at japan it usually is so if it was boxing they would have no problem uh, yeah. just having it at whatever time for and, and it wouldn't matter that the europeans were asleep or had to stay up until two in the morning but f1 it still shows you know they're not willing to to write us off yeah. just yet we're, we're still we're still somewhat of a factor in the tv schedule yeah, yeah. Although I don't know, like you mentioned, boxing, it wouldn't it wouldn't be surprising for like a like a championship bout to to start to start pretty late. And I know, like things like MMA, oftentimes will go will go late if they're if the big bout will be be on pretty late at night. So if you're watching it, even on the East Coast, it might be an eleven o'clock or twelve o'clock start. So we're not too too far off of that. And I think maybe that's the vibe they're going for because it is in vegas where you have the championship heavyweight boxing fights for so so many years i i think they're trying to sort of get that same excitement to the people that 
come to see it in person, however many that's going to be. And then obviously for the people watching it, they want to generate that same, all right, we've seen, there's no preliminaries, but you know, like the the buildup will be the same across the weekend. And then you have the big championship bout Saturday night. And that's kind of exciting. So that's, that's an interesting thing that you bring up there. How many people are actually going to go and see this? So I, I wanted to get out there. And like I said, there was some half opportunities for, for us to go and do stuff. Some of, they've all fallen through, so it's fine. Yeah. But um, but the, the the best one would be obviously for us to be paid to go out there and do stuff, which nearly did happen. The second best option would be to get out there economically and and then be able to take opportunities once we're we're already out there. For example, there was a podcast studio that I was I was yeah. talking to, and uh, and you go okay for, for how high profile this whole event is. I was looking at it as a a business investment. And actually, the the flights, which I assumed would be very expensive, say weighed in. I could get there for like four hundred quid. I would have to stop in Alaska somewhere, you know, and it was a total of twenty four hours to get there. But that's fine. I don't mind traveling. And hotel rooms were completely standard price. So looking yeah. at you could Airbnb or hotel for about a hundred dollars a night. That wasn't a, a massive deal either. But the tickets were still in excess of a thousand dollars so like 1200 pounds i think was the the three-day pass um and there's no point going all the way there if you're not going to see cars but then we're hearing reports that ticket sales are are incredibly low so i haven't got anything concrete there was a a newspaper article from the promote uh, from the the circuit representatives that were saying we're expecting it to be sold out but then we're hearing other people saying now we've been told that sales are just in the bin at like 10%, 20%. Like even if they didn't sell 50%, that would surely be considered a failure. But what would be more annoying is to see empty seats in that grandstand when I would have paid a few hundred quid, which to me feels like a very reasonable price to go and watch a Grand Prix. You know, the first Silverstone weekend I, int- I attended, and uh, one of the most popular Grand Prix in the world, it was £300 for a three-day general admission ticket. To look at like twelve hundred quid, it, like obviously no, I don't know, I don't know who's paying those prices, but like obviously no, and the, uh, that feels like a fail if there's empty grandstand seats. So I don't know what that's doing for the city. They've blocked out views from everyone who isn't deliberately going there, so no one's going to accidentally see the Formula One. You're going to have to on purpose spend twelve hundred quid or twelve hundred dollars to go and see that event. Now, if if the NFL came to Colchester, where I live, and played at our local stadium, but charged me a thousand pounds, like I wouldn't go. I go. There, there's an event that costs a thousand pounds. I'm not going. So I just I really don't understand the pricing, or or bringing it to a city if it's closed off to to everyone, except people who would casually pay twelve hundred pounds to try a new thing. Well, Bit I think rant, first sorry. of all, there are probably more people who will do that. Than you think there are. Where are they? Eat them. Eat those people. Yeah. Well, well, please send us your money. Yeah. Patron, Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Mr. Yeah. Apex. Thank you. Yes. And You're we've, got, yeah, we've had some new patrons uh, this week as well. And it's been very nice to see because it makes me and Matt breathe in and out a little bit less heavy because we know that we can prioritize Mr. Apex over other work. Thank you. But yeah, sorry. I went off on a rant there. Because I, and I was I was just going to go. I would be surprised to see em, any empty grandstands. Really? I suspect okay. 
Well, well, it's um, they have this thing surge pricing. Maybe if you've ever taken an Uber or Lyft at rush hour in the rain when it's cold, you've noticed that your ten block trip costs you seven thousand dollars. But if you happen to be taking that trip in the middle of the day when it's sunny, it costs you ten dollars. Well, I think I think they wanted to sell based on exclusivity. And it may be that all the super duper VIP stuff, like, I mean, they were like $50,000 packages being offered by hotels. Probably all of that is sold out because anyone who has the kind of money to say, yes, I can afford that is really not worried about spending that kind of money in any event. And it's a new thing and they'll probably want to be there. But what I, I will expect to happen is as we get closer to the event, I would expect those ticket prices to drop and or eventually people just to be let in for free to see it if they're really that desperate to get people in. I don't think they will be. Um, where where they might be losing out is uh, I think it's a thing certain operators will buy tickets and then offer packages based on those tickets. So like, yeah. you know, the Aston team might offer a super exclusive VIP package. But most of the people who buy that might spend a little bit more money and do the super fancy thing, or there'll be people who don't have enough money to do that and would never consider it. So it may be there's some mid-level operators that are getting a little bit hammered right now. And if you happen to be one of those and would like to offer me <laughs> VIP access. Feedback at mistapex.net. Just, just I will absolutely, it. I will pick yeah. up a plane ticket, rent myself a hotel room, and I'll come out and say, and I will point out that I'm a minor celebrity now in the Formula One world, and at least tens of people know me. Yeah, yeah, that's Tens true. of people might know me. You have some so followers, I, I would, yeah. I would happily come and 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 terrify your guests okay, talking about okay. tire construction. Okay, Matt's personal uh, business <laughs> advert aside. No, I was just annoyed because I was sort I was <laughs> trying to go a third of the way across the world to to get in. So and I, and the price is is ridiculous. So it had better be it, it had better be full Las Vegas. Um, anyway, so do we think <laughs> that this Grand Prix will be good? Okay, what's the we did kind of the worst case scenario with the field spread earlier, which which is personally what I think is going to happen. I think uh, teams are going to struggle to to get their setups and to get pace, uh, and we're going to see you know like um you know like a, a long a long long chain of of spread out cars by by the third or fourth lap. What's the best case scenario? Like how can this race be good? Because the only defense so far I have seen for for this track is well singapore's at night on a street circuit are you saying singapore's rubbish yeah kinda but we always accepted that singapore was rubbish because it was like the one race that was kind of like that okay it's at night it's a a city destination we get it we'll tolerate it yeah all right we'll tolerate monaco earlier in the season we all know that's rubbish but okay i know i know you have to gaslight us into saying you have to be there okay fine that's the two, wasn't it? And then Baku was introduced and they had one, I think the first race had a brilliantly timed safety car. There was a well-timed red flag in 2021. But without those things, that is not a good circuit to go racing on. But the defences I've seen are, yeah, well, well, uh, are Singapore and Baku rubbish then? Yes, they are. So, I don't know, we're going to judge Las Vegas as a street circuit. Like you and I will judge it as a street circuit. Whereas I don't think the general F1 population is has had their expectations managed for that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, for me, 
I think it's very easy to say this is going to be an interesting Grand Prix to watch. Mm. Never raced there before. We have weird environmental challenges. Yeah. It's at a bizarre time. And they're they're interesting parameters to sort of be watched and looked over. And and there will be discussions, fun discussions to come out of it. Will it be good? Well, no, of course not. Max is going to win and everybody knows it. What would make it good? Oh, pretty simple. Come out of the pit lane. Max spins up the rear tires, goes spinning off into, I don't know, pick your favorite other driver that you like to see not finish the race. We get a red flag and everybody restarts with half the race left on very cold tires. And it's a nail biter to the finish between three or four different manufacturers, including maybe a midfield team. Who knows? Oz might do well here. The other thing I do want to point out is I think they're talking about around 350 kilometers per hour top speeds here. So if you were there in person and saw a car going that fast, All right. it yeah, would I be pretty be. exciting regardless of who <laughs> was doing what in the rest of the race. I was trying to be there. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to see F1 cars going super duper fast. And uh, yeah, I mean, geez, there is really nothing quite like watching F1 cars just absolutely bomb by you. And you get that same, you don't, yeah, that, 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 that experience is very hard to to replicate. So when when I think about whether I'm say going to go to Silverstone or not, there is a genuine toss up between the experience of being there and say watching the rear end of Formula One cars going through Maggots and Beckets and and watching that direction change as if by magic, even at slower speeds through the first section uh, round the loop as it flicks onto the Wellington Straight. It, it's unbelievable. It's it's like they're just spinning in 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 motion it's like they get to the end of the loop and just spin and then go down to uh you know go like they're on a railway turntable so yeah. there's that kind of thing of go right do i want that experience of of seeing it it's incredible to see it and and actually WEC is way up there if you get a chance to go and see uh world endurance championship cars like watching those in the support series cars going past you on track is an incredible experience it's completely different though from actually watching the race. And one of the things that puts me off from, from ever actually attending Grand Prix is that, like, I was at the 2013 Grand Prix and I really didn't have much idea uh, about what was going on outside of, of Sector 1. And I was disappointed that I kept missing moves that were happening down at, down at Stowe. So it's a completely different experience. It's a completely different sport, if you like. So I kind of, I don't want to miss the race. <laughs> so whenever I look at yeah. the, the tickets, I'm like, right, I want to see Friday and... Friday and Saturday. So that's that's one thing. You go, okay, well, the experience of watching F1 cars at this hypothetical maximum speed, that's fine, but that isn't going to change the TV experience at all. In fact, if anything, it's just going to change the sound of the onboard from me to me as it runs out of power at the end of the straight. That's my best <laughs> V6 hybrid impression. I, I like that. I think that's the next set of re- regulations we're really worried about, though. The good news with the MGUH is it's going to keep that uh, battery nice and charged up and plenty of energy headed off to the um, ancillary systems. Where are you going to charge your battery around this track? Uh, The MGUH can send electrical energy directly to to various systems. So because uh, because you're running high in the revs for long periods of time, the MGUH is basically making free energy for the rest of the car. You can only put so much of it into your battery. Do you know what? I'm thinking of the you MGUK. You can send it other places yeah. for free. So I'm thinking of the MGUK, aren't I? Where the, the kinetic yeah. battery, where you get 
recover energy from breaking. And that's, that is the discussion about the next power unit regulations and whether or not uh, the, there will be enough regeneration possible to, to create the amount of energy they want to use electrically or whether or not they're going to have to parasitically run the internal combustion engine to charge up the battery a little bit on mm. the straights. Well, it's going to be, this is, yeah, yeah. It's going to be yeah. sustainable fuels though, isn't it? So I, 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 I've been led to believe that that is all going to be from uh, crushing guinea pigs through a, a blender. And, uh, so, you know, and there's so many guinea pigs that will be fine. Yeah, you know, WEC actually uses um, discarded uh, discarded grapes from winemaking for their fuel now. Is it? Yeah, Re- so really? it's 100%. Yeah, drop in, drop in, same energy, density. Is that fuel that could have been wine? No, no, oh. it's, it's leftover after the winemaking. Okay, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Although I've okay. had some wine that has tasted like fuel. It didn't come from France. So the best case scenario is drama. And that's... Yeah, that, and that, but that's a problem, though, isn't it? So, I mean, that's the same in Miami. And have we had a good race in Miami? No. Are most of the races in Baku any good? No. Do we get any good Singapore Grand Prix? Just that that one where it was made good because Russell and Hamilton couldn't overtake signs. But generally, no. That's always a dud. So, what we're hoping for is, and this is this puts us in a very you know a bracket of fans that we wouldn't normally want to associate with. No, enjoy, enjoy, you know, enjoy what you want to enjoy. But there are people who are there for the crashes and the drama. But I think that's all we've yeah. got. That's all we've got. I think well, for, the, for this, I, I don't know. I, I, I think you've got Williams. Genuinely, this is this True. is a track that could really super duper work for them. Obviously, and much to your utter annoyance, you've got Alpha Towery with the potential with their updated aerodynamics. Come on, Yuki. Come on, Yuki. To, to 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 be i mean they're, they're in a pretty serious battle um weren't they for like eighth place with alfa romeo like that like, doesn't there's matter not nothing at stake here no no no. that doesn't matter the battle is sonoda versus ricardo that is the battle for the soul of the red bull succession line yes and, and so i mean and and you know there's there's the um, there's always the perennial how will Perez do at this track question to be answered. <laughs> I don't want to play. I don't want to play. Which he's been, he's been play doing game. better. I think, I think, I think he's, I, 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 you know, you know, the funniest thing to me, like I'm going to completely derail this whole, whole show here. That's fine. Is you gave me so much grief. Yep. for talking about how, uh, and Brad did too, but Brad just gives everybody grief. So I just ignore that. But genuinely, if you have been where Perez was, with as terrible as his performance was and knowing that everything is on the line, every time you walk on the track to see him come back just to where he has is actually a really, as a performer, mm. I find that very impressive because mentally it's hard to do. Like once you're lost and you have to go out in front of the audience and you're going out there saying, I have no idea what's going to happen when I try to do this thing and to go out there and, and to be able to get back to, even uh, a respectable level of performance in the race. You know, I mean, like Alonzo showed him up a little bit, but that's Alonzo in a too. Much I mean, come on. Car. it's not like yeah. nobody. And, yeah. and, and, and qualifying was never really his thing anyway. So, so yeah. I, I do genuinely feel like he's made progress with this car. And I'm sort of interested to see if he can get closer in qualifying now, because, because if they figured out how to work with him, and the car, 
they should continue to be able to extract more performance from it in qualifying. And and that's the unanswered question right now. There's a movie, an American movie about baseball. And I can't remember what it's called. And I can't remember who is in Hit it. the thing with the stick. And it's no, about 30 years old as well. But it was about a okay. one-armed batter, batsman, batter. Right? Okay. He, he, had, he had one arm and it was his bad arm. And the story was right. you know, he lost it as a kid. And then he... But, but he still managed to just about get into a, a majors team. Is that the thing? Yeah. Anyway, so he started off, hit a few home runs, and it was going quite well. And then it started going badly, as all movies do. And it was going so badly that he kept not hitting it. And then at one game, he hit it. It went into the ground, and he ran to first base. And his fan base went absolutely crazy. They're like, yes, finally. You know, he got a, a hit, a ball hit. And then the coach turned around and said to the the family, I think, they said, the fact that you're celebrating him getting to first base shows that it's over. And that's the feeling I get with Perez. So you're celebrating him going on to first base. Me as a Perez no. fan, I'm going, no. we shouldn't. Sorry. The fact that we're celebrating. Brazil was more than first base. That's my argument. He got Brazil beaten was more than to the podium. Yeah, by... was it the one before, I, I, I could see your point. Like, whatever. He finished in the top 10, yay. But Brazil, fighting for a podium with Alonzo and, and like genuinely fighting with him and, and then Aston that, that clearly had a lot of performance no, and coming from as far back as he did, which is, I know that's your first base. He came back from so far, but his qualifying was always suspect, but I see the race (laughs) performances coming back and to recover that after you've lost it, it's like a golfer who has the yips and then gets a new putter and then figures out how to putt again and is competitive again. Right. I, I think it's I think it's an impressive I think it's a more impressive story, but I also understand you don't want to give right. yourself any hope. So, so fair enough. So Verstappen, I'll allow you that interpretation. Verstappen's out there getting birdies if we're gonna do golf. He's out there getting birdies, yeah. And what he's we're playing saying, with a seven iron and a driver and, and shooting ten under care. par. Yeah, it's but ridiculous. what we're saying is that Perez is shanking it off the tee every time and putting it out of bounds, getting penalty strokes, but then we're celebrating that he gets onto the green and two putts. And gets you know, yeah. And, but he's still, it's still a double bogey. So you're still if you, celebrating. If you've a ever double had bogey. the shanks, you would understand what it, what it, what an impressive achievement that is. Pretty much, my I dream of the shanks. That's that's a level I can aspire to. At least I'm making contact with the ball. Okay, I, but I think in general, I do get annoyed with this comeback drive narrative. Week in, week out in Formula One, the driver that gets celebrated the most seems to be the driver that qualifies out of position and then does some overtakes. And in fact, there was a period, it hasn't come up much lately, where Lance Stroll kept getting lauded for having the most overtakes or the most Did positions. Did call it like the worst qualifier award for yeah, a while on our but show? It was, uh, yeah. he kept, yeah, but he's, he, he's gained the most places than anybody else on lap one. Yeah, worst qualifier. of course, because <laughs> he's, he's fighting cars that are like, you know, right down <laughs> at the bottom of the championship. Yeah, yeah you're like Flintstoning it at the start. It should have been. People saying, look, that just shows how bad his qualifying was. But it wasn't. It was celebrated as, see, see, he can race and overtake and stuff like that. But it happens all the time. Perez has had so many Driver of the Day awards from, from basically messing up Saturdays. So just as, as a rule, can we, can we not do that? And, and if you're listening to my voice, can you join forces with me and, uh, and uh, Meg Schuster from, from The Ringer, uh, a show I do as well? And we would like to all vote for... Latifi as driver of the day in in Las Vegas. Whatever happens, I'm going to get on there. I would like to throw the weight of Mr. Apex and the ringer and and give Latifi 
something to celebrate at a home race. Are you in, Matt? Are you voting? Did I just say Latifi? He's he's not driving anymore. Sergeant. I clearly meant Logan Sergeant. I was wondering, like, have they left this hole where you can just, like, write in a driver? And that would be hilarious because I would totally be behind it. So I clearly meant Logan Sergeant, but I said Latifi about five (laughs) times. I was kind of confused. No, but I thought you might have meant Sergeant there, but <laughs> But that's a bit of a Freudian slip, isn't it? Because basically every conversation yeah. we've had about uh, Sergeant has been exa- nearly exactly the same copy and paste that we were having about Latifi. But yeah, let's do um, Sarge Tifi, driver of the day uh, in the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Let's make it happen. Maybe he'll score another point. Yeah, wow. Okay, good. All right. Well, uh, I, I'm looking forward to, to Las Vegas. More with curiosity. It is something different. I The best case scenario is drama, I think. But there, there could be plenty of drama. You could see teams really struggle in quali- in uh, practice, even to get the rear end to stick. So that's, that's a prediction I'll make. FP1, you're going to see cars snaking out of the traction zones. And not every team is going to be able to overcome that. So I think the whole journey from Friday practice to the race on Sunday, ho- hopefully that can be quite quite fascinating. I would I would say there's a high possibility that this is a, a one-stop race where everyone gets through turn one clearly and there's field spread field spread. And that happens at races like Baku and Singapore. So maybe just manage your expectations. I think there's too many races on the calendar where we have to do this now with uh, Miami also on the calendar and and Monaco obviously as well. So it's another race where we're going to have to manage expectations. And uh, and if we get a little sprinkling of drama, then so be it. So earlier today, me and Matt caught up with Peter Wright, who's a real lawyer, Matt, and he's a, he's a very nice man, and he understands the law and stuff and also does research, which isn't really in the Mist Apex spirit, but man, does he know his stuff and compile good arguments and insights. Yeah, he's he is the guy you want to talk to because he loves Formula One and he also knows things. All right, so let's have that conversation. Now we're going to talk about things like Andretti and Felipe Massa. We'll see you on Sunday. I already said that. I've forgotten what I've said in the previous pre-record. So I'll just say it twice. I'll see you on Sunday. And then later, I'll say see you on Sunday again. Bye. No, can't say bye. We're going into a segment. Oh, it's a disaster. I'll do another breaker, and then here's the segment. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now then, from the glamour of Vegas to the equally glamorous world of politics and law and the person that we call upon when we need to know what's going on in the political machinations of Formula One is Peter Wright from Digital Law. No longer Digital Law UK, just Digital Law because you're now international legal superstars. Hello, Peter. Um, uh, hi, Spanners, and hello, everyone. And yeah, we, we've gone global now. So uh, yeah, we, we dropped the UK bit. <laughs> nice. So you're going to bring us some some updates on stories that have been bubbling under the surface. Uh, we want to talk about some Andretti news. But I think I think the thing that's been most prevalent since Brazil uh, was the appearance of future Brazilian president, probably Felipe Massa. How How is his case going? Because the last I heard, he'd sort of issued an ultimatum to the FIA, like you had better make a decision by sometime. And I think that time seems to have come and gone. Indeed. Well, at a time of recording, the, the date that is in question is the 15th of November. So Ooh, that's tomorrow. It is imminent, wow. imminently. Have you we know, chosen exactly the wrong day to record this? And by tomorrow, they're going to declare him the 2008 champion. Well, I'd say this is the right time to, to be having a conversation about this because I can hopefully give uh, you and all the listeners a little bit of background on exactly what a lot of the public pronouncements that have been made on this so far actually mean. And the thing that we're going to get tomorrow is a little bit of sort of put up or shut up. We'll be finding out, are they actually going to do something about this? As in, is Massa's legal team going to get serious? Or is there going to be a sort of gently walking away, disappearing into the hedge, hoping that no one notices a lot of noise. That oh, nice. I understand that reference. That is a Homer Simpsons reference. <laughs> yeah, so, 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 okay. So, first of all, let's take a guess. Will he be declared 2008 champion? Well, I'll take you back to my, my previous answer when you asked me that. And the last time I was on, I said questions to which the answer is no. Yeah. Um, I mean, looking at this at a fairly um, rudimentary level, First of all, we've got to look at any potential claim that Massa has got. And I say potential because that's literally where this is. They have sent a letter to the FIA threatening to take them to court using the courts in England and Wales. So, you know, they've basically said, we're going to sue you in London, potentially in the High Court, uh, because it would be a major piece of litigation. Um, but we haven't got to the point of saying... We're actually going to issue legal proceedings to go to court. So all we have is what they call a letter before action, a letter before claim. That's what they've put in, basically saying, we think we've got a uh, a case here and we want you to start negotiating with us. We want you to start confirming what evidence you've got to defend the allegations that we are making with regards to Freshgate 2008 and the, the whys and the wherefores of that. But as I say, at the moment, all we've got is a letter. So we've not had any litigation. We haven't seen what real evidence 
Master House, apart from that interview that's been quoted that Bernie Eccleston gave. And we certainly don't know what formally the the FIA's position would be in defending this because they, they do not have to publicly issue anything as yet. It, it's a letter that's been said. Um, and I think we just have to think, well, what, what do we have currently in the public domain? And, and a disclaimer here, I am I'm not privy to any, you know, illegal machinations that might be taking so place. I've not seen any letters or any other things there. I am merely just talking about this in the same way that everyone out there has, has seen different articles on different publicly available sources. Well, I immediately have a question. And you just mentioned the FIA, and it occurred to me, I thought I had seen people interviewing Dominic Colley about this. Has Massa sent this letter to Liberty FOM and not to the FIA? Or has this been sent to, to both parties? Do you know? So everything I've seen, and again, I'm just going from what's quoted in publicly available um, articles, they have referred yeah. to the FIA. And I presume that's because his the remedy he's looking for is, I want the um, Singapore Grand Prix 2008 to be in effect, expunged from the record books, and that then, in theory, reapportioning of points from that, um, for, or taking away the points that were scored there, would then have an impact on the final 2008 championship table. That That's what he's alleging. Based on the statements that were made around, yeah, we subsequently found out that, um, you know, Crashgate, there were decisions made with regards to uh, a driver deliberately driving into a wall. But at the moment, the, the results from that race stand. The precedent, of course, is not there because never in the entire history of the Formula One World Championship yeah. have we had a race result annulled. So there's obviously plenty of examples of some laps being voided where or, or teams being disqualified. So there are a number a number of kind of face saving options the FIA could take if they if they so wished. So they could just go, do you know what? You're absolutely right. It's a disgrace that that previous administration didn't take immediate action. We will take action now and disqualify Renault. And, and we apologize that that wasn't done earlier. And of course, that doesn't affect anything. But this is what I mean by what's your evidence? Because the question at the moment is, why would you? What reason would the FIA have for taking such an extraordinary step? Uh, the only evidence we have is, uh, you know, a, a interview that Bernie Eccleston gave and he doesn't have the greatest record in terms of being a reliable witness when it comes to saying um, oh, things. Allegedly. Hang on. Don't, you're the one who always says to me, we have to say he's allegedly an unreliable witness. I personally think he's brilliant, probably. <laughs> okay. That was Peter Wright from Digital Law making. That was the voice you just heard. Just to keep him... Just to keep him clear, as an American, I'm going to say, I believe at this point he has an actual record in court, not just an alleged record based on our observations. So very, very briefly, uh, Bernie Eccleston pled guilty to fraud by false representation. Uh, that's a base $652 million to HMRC, which is the tax authorities in the UK, uh, with regards to a trust uh, based in the Far East that he neglected to tell the tax authorities about uh, in the UK. So when I'm saying he's not necessarily reliable witness, <laughs> that's what I'm referring to. Well, I, I think he, uh, he, he owned up to it. So that's all right. That's what, that's what I think. I'm still, I'm still team Eccleston here um, in general. 
So we're not talking about uh, Bernie Eccleston, though, are we, Peter? No. Um, what, what what the the listeners who aren't on YouTube uh, won't see is that you are currently in a house, uh, and most of the audio- ornaments are, are solid gold, and you actually drive a solid gold diamond encrusted car. The windscreen is diamond encrusted because lawyers are, are very very wealthy individuals that cost a lot. When when do the legal costs start becoming a problem for Massa. Like, I don't know how wealthy he is, but, you know, could he afford to call up Peter Wright and add another diamond to your gold-plated Lexus? I don't even know if Lexus is an expensive car. I took a punt. I took a, a street rat punt. Uh, well, okay. Well, I've thrown you a little no, I'll just draw a veil over the whole what you were saying about um, look, all lawyers earning a lot. I, I can tell you for a fact they don't. Um, and, and, and certainly... Um, Certainly, have not a golden got a golden crusted cart, but uh, I think the, the um, and I'll, I'll also not go into detail on um, Lexus because you don't tend to see so many Lexi on the road right? anymore. No, oh. <laughs> I think I think I have thrown you off topic. But yeah. when, when are the legal costs going to start kicking Indeed. in? There's, there's there's a point where you go, all right, you, you, it's all talk at the moment. We had months and months of talk. Unless you do something. Frankly, his credibility and his reputation is in the dirt at the moment. I think if we take a popular poll of how people feel about Felipe Massa at the moment, it's less good than it was before. Indeed. Um, So the legal costs only will become an issue once legal proceedings are filed. So at the moment where we've got what we call this pre-action phase that we're in of letters being sent back and forth... um, Costs do not start to get incurred. What do we mean by costs? Um, whenever you hear of a big piece of litigation, so for example, you know jo- Johnny Depp and Amber Heard last year, you had legal costs involved, and it, it runs into millions of, of pounds or dollars or whatever currency you're looking at because of all the um, very expensive people who are in the room. Um, so, and not to mention the length of time that it usually takes before you actually get into a courtroom. Very often, this this litigious process will run for a long time. But at the moment, we have not got legal proceedings. What do I mean by that? Legal proceedings start when a party goes to court and issues a claim, files a claim form that says, I have a claim, you know, I, Felipe Massa, have a claim that I should have been world champion in 2008. I'm very upset about it. Um, And this is the basis for my claim. Here is the court fee that I am going to pay um, for this. You have to pay a fee based on the sum at issue. Now, um, if you're claiming more than four or five figures, that amount will be large. And it's almost like saying, I'm serious, therefore I'm going to pay a couple of thousand pounds on a court fee. And that's just the court fee that you're paying the court to lodge that piece of paper to say, I have a case. Didn't you say that apart from having the championship robbed, he was talking about the immeasurable amount of money that it has cost me in oh, basically yeah. lost promotion and career stuff. So, yeah. but but in future conversations, like anything I heard from him in Brazil, he seems to have dropped that and really right. focused in on the, I'm the, I had my championship stolen. Yeah. Mm. And I think that probably suggests that he has difficulty in accurately saying, well, this is the position I would be in if I had actually won the world championship in 2008. You know, you can point to, to Jensen Butman and say, oh, look, Jensen won one title the year after, and um, he's now doing this and that and the other. But of course, Jensen was had a very different career both before and after his world championship and has gone in a different direction. So you, you can't really compare apples and oranges, can you? 
So I think that might be the reason why he's moved away from that line of, of saying, well, this is what I'm after. And he's going more towards saying, I want the world championship. Um, but the thing here is that even to get to the point of drafting that form, he wouldn't write that himself. He would instruct his very expensive lawyers, his global legal team, which he referred to previously. And you know they, they would be drafting that form and in theory putting together witness statements by Massa saying, this is how I've been in fact impacted by, by this. This is how unfair it was, blah, blah, blah. Supporting witness evidence, documentary evidence, probably sitting down and getting a detailed statement from Bernie Eccleston. That's not going to come cheap, is it? So you can quickly see where all of the uh, costs would start to escalate in a massive way. Even just Felipe Massa's costs in putting this case together. Um, before you then look at the FIA incurring a huge amount of costs to defend said claim. So that would all begin to snowball, particularly over the long period of time this would take. So I'm immediately, from an American litigation point of view, curious if he were to bring this claim and it were to be litigated and thrown out in certain cases in the U.S. as a plaintiff bringing a case that had no merit, ultimately, you might be found liable for the expenses of the defendant. So is it the case that if he does pay his money and take his chances, so to speak, because we are going to Vegas after all, <laughs> that he might be on the hook to pay not just his own, I'm assuming, fairly massive legal fees, if we're going to grant that there's not somebody in the background bankrolling this, because that that's something that's possible in the U.S. too. Um, is it possible then that he could be on the hook for both sides of this legal action should it come to court? Yes. If it got as far as going to court and if he were then to lose, and even then if you lose, you don't necessarily end up paying the other side's costs. That is a decision that the judge would take and that would be dependent on the conduct of parties and various other issues that will be taken into account. Um, but I think it's also worth mentioning here that um, even to actually get to the point of having the day in court, we'd be talking about that being years from now. We've currently got a delay in, in the courts, that which you had courts in the UK were, were slow anyway. Then we had the pandemic. So it would take years for this to get in front of a judge, and it would be a complex case anyway. So I think you'd be looking at a good three, four years to, yeah. to get there. So I think I think we're close to to being done with kind of an update on this because we're still awaiting this decision that's meant to be, you know, of the 15th of November deadline. Yes. Is there anything the FIA could answer that would just kill this? So could the FIA turn around and go, do you know what? We've judged it and we are going to cancel the Singapore Grand Prix. I know there's no precedence, but we've just decided to do that to make this go away. Like, is that a, a technical possibility? No. Oh, why? Um, I don't. I don't think they'd end up doing that just based on um, threats that have been made in correspondence. Right at the moment, in that letter, basically, Master and his legal team will have said, "We want disclosure. We want to know what you knew about that race in two thousand and eight. We want to see the reports from the stewards. We want to see, um, you know, even even emails and what or WhatsApp messages or SMSs that were exchanged at the time." Um, probably wasn't even WhatsApp in 2008 after all, but they'd want a lot of contemporaneous evidence because at the moment, you know, they're sort of saying, look, we've got this issue, but we need disclosure from you. We need all of this evidence actually for us to make our claim. So it's a bit of what we call a fishing expedition. 
they're wanting to get evidence from the FIA and FOM so they can then look at thinking, well, will we go ahead and actually make a claim or not? Um, the chances of the FIA turning around and saying, you've sent that letter and go, you're absolutely right, we'll give you that. <laughs> I just don't see it happening. Okay. No, no, fair enough. So the likely outcome is that uh, FIA are going to say, okay, no, we're not going to take any action. Please proceed with whatever it is that you're you're going to do. And and so this is now going to... So once that deadline passes and they go, nah, that's it. We're on this three-year roller coaster and it becomes the least interesting topic ever, apart from we're going to have to hear from Massa every Brazilian Grand Prix talking about it. Yeah. So that's the most likely outcome. Great. Well, well I mean... I'm glad we got the update, Peter, but it isn't the most thrilling. <laughs> Actually, my well, God. I, I, yeah. yeah. I do have one question for you more. Um, the thing that is uh, that I'm wondering most about, although, again, like as you say, if this is mostly going to be a fishing expedition, they're hoping to get uh, to discovery and find something that's more of a smoking gun that might work for them. And even then, if you look at how normally, like you say, oh, well, we'll throw them out of the championship, it it doesn't change. The only way that I recall the result really changes is if you basically give Felipe Massa the position he was running in before his car caught fire in the pit lane. And I don't know why they would do that, because the whole rest of the race happened after that crash. But aside from that, in, in the FIA boilerplate, there is set out a court of appeals that you can go to as long as you present new evidence. And fundamentally, it would seem to me that this statement from Bernie Eccleston that he since has disavowed would technically be that. Is there is it reasonable or, or why is it that they think that a court in England will simply ignore the process already set out for him to start on from a legal point of view? questioning stewards' decisions, and just say, oh, well, yeah, you did sign that agreement as a participant, but we're going to ignore it and just let you come to our court and we'll adjudicate it here. I think you're quite right. There would be that issue on jurisdiction. Um, There is also an argument, don't forget here, on the sheer length of time. Um, Certainly with regards to the law in England and Wales, you have something called limitation. If you were trying to sue some on something six years after that happened in relation to anything over, say, a, a contract or an incident... Um, your time, your statute barred, your time bound. You can't turn around 10, 15, 20 years later. You can apply to the court and say, I want you to consider this. But the judge has to think, well, actually, there's a, there's a real good reason why we should disapply what the law says with regards to limitation. Um, there is probably a similar thing with regards to what's in the, the FI statutes there, uh, Matt, as well. Um, and that could actually dictate the reason why he's coming to... Um, the court, uh, the high court, because he knows full well that limitation means he simply can't do it there. Um, and I think that, that that's part and parcel of what we're dealing with here. Even before you get near that three-year process, I say limitation would come to play. That could take you two years to sort that out. Well, I can't wait to watch this slowly <laughs> unfold. But I, I think I think it's great to get that update because I think the update is that this is a, as a story is 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 pretty much dead from an interest point of view, and at some point in 2028, I, I, it's not your fault that that's the case, and I appreciate the update. I'm not like, no, Peter, why did you bother? Um, because I think people got this feeling like something's going to happen imminently, and what you've done is you've managed our expectations for that. It, it didn't come out like that. It came like it came out like, thanks a bunch, righty. That's what it came out as. I accept that. 
All right, let's move on to something that is realistic and might happen slightly sooner. That's my breaking news sound. As Matt, you brought me some breaking news via Chris Medlin's Twitter account, which is where most news comes from. Uh, well, that's where all news comes from for the uh, for those in the know. Uh, but it turns out that I think in the latest in the raising the stakes department, GM has officially applied to be a power unit manufacturer as of 2028, uh, saying they plan to partner with. You guessed it, Andretti. So it's just one more because we've also heard, you know, that maybe there had been some approaches to GM. Gee, wouldn't you really rather work with one of our other teams that already exists and not this silly Andretti startup that will probably be crap anyway? We don't know the truth of those exactly, but but certainly those rumors were floating around. So it, it just seems like the latest in what to me is an incomprehensible saga of there's no really good reason to say no other than the current teams are just being well toddlers about it if i'm being honest okay so just to 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 get off facts straight here because that is the next topic that peter's gonna be bringing us insight onto into is uh, basically andretti's bid to to join formula one so chris medlin says breaking General Motors say it has registered with the FIA to be an F1 power unit manufacturer from 2028 onwards. Cadillac would Andretti Andretti Cadillac would be powered by GM power units should it be successful with its F1 entry. Now that doesn't say the FIA have completely approved it or they've started building it. All they're saying is that they've registered to be an F1 power unit. That could be filling a form in. So I'm not I'm not hearing anything from the FIA rubber stamping this at the moment. So I mean that shows willing from GM. This is what we want to speak to you about, Peter, is basically where, where, where does it stand? Where are we? Because the last I basically think I had my head around it was that Andretti have been approved by the FIA and nothing could really stop them lining up on the grid now, except the FOM could say, well, we're not going to point the cameras at you and then they don't get any sponsors. So it's a horrible mess. The teams don't look great out of it. The FIA doesn't look great out of it. Sorry, the FOM doesn't look great out of it. FIA look like they're being almost deliberately provocative and it's all happening out in public. We get to see all their pants drying on the line. That's, that's one way of putting it, yes. Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, can I first of all just say that I think it, it, you, you guys have been real supporters of the idea of having uh, a larger grid, something yeah, larger definitely. than 10 teams. Yeah, yeah. So quite open about that. Yeah, 30 um, 30 now hang on, hang on. Thirty car grid. So we want. I want fifteen three car teams. So forty five cars. Uh, days of pre qualifying. That would get rid of sprint races. I just solved it. Well, exactly. It would make for a more interesting yeah. competition. That's there just exactly what it should be. Um, and it seems that FOM have, have had this view that oh, we have our ten teams, and if you want to come in, you buy a team. Um, very much in a sort of um, NFL style where it's sort of the, the, the close shot, but it will still move around because we have these teams, but they can move um, and be purchased and do different things. Um, but they seem to have made this decision without really thinking about how uh, competition law works in the EU, which the FIA is very heavily mindful of after its experience of being investigated uh, 20 years ago on this point. So that's why the FIA has turned around and said, Absolutely, you can come in, step this way. 
Um, in fairness, they did go through a process and whittle down from a number of entries down to just the one. And they said, well, this is our criteria and we think you've met this. Well, a number of other teams or potential teams haven't. Um, and and now it's it's a matter of, and I, I found it great having the insight from uh, from Joe Sayward on this because he's been um, very clear at saying what the view is of the teams and that the view of the team seems to be that, well, look, there's not enough um, pie to warrant diluting it from 10 people having a slice of um, hundreds of millions to, to it then being 11 people having a slice. But to a certain extent, I don't think they're necessarily viewing the fact, well, what about if you manage to grow said pie by having a US team grow in the sp- presence of the sport in such a valuable market? It's also, just, just to further the NFL analogy for a minute, um, you look at the size of a sport like that and the commensurate size of the teams, they are way bigger than the Formula One teams in terms of their monetary value which makes you think the sport has not necessarily peaked yet. I think certainly a lot of those who bought teams a few years ago are now looking and thinking, oh, cash out here and make a great deal. Who wouldn't? Um, But potentially, we don't know exactly where it's going to go. But when you look at the presence of other sports, not to mention the success that the sport is having through Netflix and the way that, in fairness, Liberty has grown the sport in recent years, of which Vegas this weekend is just the latest example. And it'd be interesting to see if actually you could grow that pie and then well, matter quite so much. See, now, this is the argument me and Matt have been having. So obviously there's the, the technical sides of the argument, but there's a real kind of argument to, to say, is this actually a good faith process? Because there's all these theoretical obstacles in the way, yet there's no definitive FOM rubber stamp. There's no, you know, Liberty Arc haven't said, yes, ah, oh, fantastic. They got through the FIA process. Phew, that's what we've been waiting on. Come on, come on in, pull up a chair. Let's talk about how much money you get. There's, there's been a kind of united front where Liberty haven't had to do that because they've deployed the teams almost on their behalf. Is that too cynical to say like, you know, you know Stroll came out saying it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it. And uh, Christian Horner came out and said, well, you'd need your own engine. And now that now that they've, you know, basically are saying, well, we'll have our own engine in 2028. What would Horner say to that? Would he move the goalposts or would he go, oh, good point. Oh, no, you're right. I said get an engine and you have. So come on in. Is is the process actually in good faith? But just standing back for a moment, does this not illustrate the problem of having the competitors having such a large say in the governance and operation of the sport? Massively. Bingo. Bingo. Yep. You're right on it. And and to me, I, I don't know, because I this is not a new topic for the two of us. Uh, we've chatted about it in private before. And uh, to me, I, I'm just really gobsmacked that 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 FOM and Liberty think they have any real say whatsoever over this process, because the last settlement sort of clearly says that the FIA is the sole regulatory body for the sport and basically says where you have to sell off your commercial rights to prevent them to prevent your regulatory powers being used for monopoly purposes. Well, if you have a legitimate team and you don't let them race because you want to make more money by not letting them race, <laughs> is that not by very definition oh, putting okay. them in danger of an eu investigation and, and brilliant and this is the perfect thing to have peter on with because our, our our my argument was that the tactic that liberty would would use is say well we've been trying to negotiate a commercial deal with them and gosh darn it do you know what we just can't quite 
come to a, a satisfactory conclusion. You know, at what point can a court say, well, that's uncompetitive and actually, you know, uh, mediate or arbitrate on that no, those negotiations? And part two of that question is, why is the EU court so important in an international sport owned by Americans? Is that, is, are they fair questions? Um, well, I suppose, well, I know that we're keeping this to a tight half hour today, so I'll try and limit yeah. the backstory on that. Um, but the, the point here is that there was a major investigation into Formula One back in the 1990s, for those yeah. of us with, cool. uh, with long memories. Uh, and it took years of investigation, years of instability until, as, as Matt referenced there, you had um, the FIA then, um, in effect, um, putting a lease on the commercial rights, which then went to, um, to FOM. Um, and it all came down to potentially acting as a cartel and being in breach of EU law. Can you remind us what happened then? Because I, I can't remember this from, from the 90s. What did they do that landed them in hot water? We got time. Oh, well, in essence, Bernie was using his ability to control. Uh, he would write uh, to a track and say, if you want Formula One, you can have Formula One, but only if you don't let these other series race here. And and he was doing this, I think, somewhat hysterically. Now, now I'm going off of memory. Normally, if I knew this was a topic, I go back and research and be certain of all my facts. But my memory is the complaint came from someone who owned a truck racing series that I think he either had a competitor series or he wanted to take over the TV rights to it. So in essence, he was making sure they couldn't go to any good tracks and essentially trying to... But then... They wound up making some third-party deal, and by the time this actually got settled, it wasn't really an issue anymore. But those are, in essence, the tactics that were being used, and not just there. A1 GP, there were there were numerous complaints uh, uh, about well, evidence of tactics like this that could be gone back and found should you choose to. And Peter's a genius because you're going to get sued now, and he completely palmed that off. Uh, but but what I love about this is, is the original report to the FIA was about them wanting to change their own regulations post, um, post-Sena, post-Imola. And while that was winding its way through the unbelievably tedious and lengthy bureaucracy, these other complaints showed up and wound up being the basis for the settlement that, as Peter says, saw the FAA having to lease their commercial rights, which also answers the question of, do Liberty own Formula One? No, they lease it from the FIA is exactly what it is. And indeed, you've then got the FIA solely in there as the regulator. And, and again, Joe, Joe Sowood has given us great history on the 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 issues there and the tensions between the teams and FOM Liberty wanting to go in a certain direction and then saying oh you know it'd be quite nice if we could just just get rid of the FIA and their awkward um, stewards and, and administrators because we don't agree with some of the decisions that they make well um, you know let, let's not relitigate some of the the, the problems that have happened there but as 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 Matt rightly says can't really pull that relationship apart due to this. Um, precedent and rather painful history that Formula One as a whole has gone through in order to reach the, the position that it's in now. That is actually a really valuable insight. I had I was completely unaware of of any of that. I think because I was probably like eleven, 
at the time. So, uh, but you've gone back, you're, we're the same age, but you've obviously researched your history and you have a, a legal knowledge of stuff like that. I wasn't implying that Peter was much, much older than me. Ignore the visuals that you're seeing on the screen. We're, we're about the same age. Uh, but ca- why is the EU so important? in this in this process we are the same age but i'm afraid this shows what i was doing in my teenage years was reading right. about fia yeah. statutes and, and competition law um, well if you want to play like a uh, bar pool or beer pong like i will be better at that so that, that's the the difference in our 20s probably so um yeah what, why is the eu so important and, and and i i if i had to guess i would guess that liberty are never going to turn around and just say no because that would be a disaster but things can be drawn out. At what point would the EU get involved? So, the, yeah, this is a slightly more complex issue because they are talking about the regulatory reach and influence of the European Union. So we've got um, a lot of the FOM companies are still corporate entities based in London. London is now, of course, uh, in the UK outside of the European Union, but the UK does have a trade and cooperation agreement with the EU, um, but quite explicitly, that excludes a regulatory reach from the European Union. However, we have teams uh, based in the European Union, notably Ferrari. We have consumers based in the European Union, a um, couple hundred million people who do like to watch Formula One and are perceived to be a sufficiently important market for races like Las Vegas to be taking place in the middle of the night to make it um, watchable for an EU market. And we've had start times shifted so that it's not quite so early for um, uh, EU um, viewers to have to set their alarm clocks for. So from that point of view, you've then got the sort of collective, the, the EU looking at that, and therefore the, the rules that the EU has in relation to that market um, therefore become uh, more important. You've also got, and I think this is something that sometimes probably are not understood quite so much, is the fact that the the European approach to regulation is to do these investigations and to be quite proactive. They will, just on the back of, as Matt was saying there, a complaint will be enough for them to mobilize quite significant resources into investigating, reaching a decision, looking at enforcement. That enforcement can be very, very large and coming out with fines and measures and saying this is what you'll have to do in order to to, to play in our marketplace which I know is very, very different from certainly in the US where, for example, um, if the federal government wants to regulate something or a federal government agency wants to do something, you very often got to drag that party all the way through court and go through that lovely litigious process that we were talking about um, earlier on. So I I know that this isn't, I suppose, as accessible or understandable (laughs) an issue when it comes to regulation like that for for those in many other countries around around the world. But that's why the EU's approach and that's why, with it being potentially quicker than having to go all the way through court, that's why, again, uh, FOM and the FIA are being a lot more alert to the threat of potentially being in breach of EU law than they might otherwise have been. But FIA, so with uh, Mohammed bin Salayam as the president, they're clear of all of this because they've said yes. Yeah. So now it, it is just Liberty Media that is at risk of running into a foul of any competition um, law. So w- if we get the feeling that Liberty don't really want Andretti in, and and when I say Liberty, that's Liberty and the teams as a, you know, this is speculation for me. Liberty and the teams as a super team of 11 entities are all like, no, <laughs> and they don't want it. Um, 
how long can they drag it out before somebody gets involved? Because you've only got to drag this out for a season or two before you're really scuppering them for the next regulation set, for example, and, and just making it commercially unviable. You keep dragging it out to the point where they just go, do you know what, then I'm not playing. Or do they have enough money to grid up and have Liberty Media not point the cameras at them? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, to a certain extent as well, I, the, the, I, I talked about a disclaimer earlier on. I've expressed a disclaimer here is that we haven't seen a copy of the Concord Agreement, which is the confidential agreement uh, governing the commercial relationship between the teams and the FOM and in, in, in turn uh, the FIA. And we haven't seen that as a confidential document. If you write to the FIA or the teams and say, can I have a look? They, they tend to re- reply very nicely and say no. Because uh, it's a commercial confidential document. But that governs a lot. A lot of the questions we're asking here are governed by what's in that document. And it is currently being renegotiated, renegotiated for another term. So, of course, um, Andretti are not a part of that. Those negotiations, they'd like to be. They'd like to be inside rather than outside. Um, but you make a good point there about uh, negotiations for new Concord and moving on. Uh, the new regulatory settlement, as well as then new, new rules are always being um, considered all the time. And, and unfortunately, they're in this position of being outside. But I think there's also, when we look again at what Formula One is now, you've talked about GM coming in, Chris Medlin's story, that's great. We'll have more manufacturers, one of the world's biggest manufacturers um, coming into F1. We've got Audi coming in again from another one of the world's biggest manufacturers. There's a lot of corporate interests here. Those corporate interests would not like to join a sport where there is a potential EU regulatory investigation on the horizon. So I think people are going to want to get this thing settled, certainly in those boardrooms where they're making decisions that are going to be to invest hundreds of millions of dollars and euros every year into a sport. I think you're going to want stability. You're not going to want uncertainty like this in the market. I think at this point, it's actually incredible that GM have dug in and backed Andretti as much as they have. And I think that's a sign of clearly the bond they have with Andretti and also the respect with which um, Michael and Mario Andretti are held. And also the fact that Ford is already on board in this sport and they don't want to be left behind as it becomes more popular in the U.S. We've seen other manufacturers, Mercedes, come in, do very well capitalizing on their success and participation in Formula One. And GM will not want Ford to have that kind of an advantage. And I think that may be part of the reason that we heard this, as Spanners points out, announcement about 2028 that's in more of an intention than than a done deal at this point. But but it is more leverage for them. Okay, Peter, just to end then, guess. Andretti, on the grid, yes or no, and when? Put your fan hat on, take your lawyer hat off. Right, yeah. When are they, when and if and how? So I'd like to see Andretti on the grid. That's not the question, Mr. Wright. Well, like, just are, let, me, let me finish. Just let me finish. I'm badgering the witness. It. Even if the argument is, oh, well, they'll be at the back of the grid. Well, let's find out. There's no point saying, oh, well, this is definitely where they'll be. Put them on the grid. Let them compete for a period of time. Uh, you know, and it's the old argument of did the French Revolution work? Well, we can't be sure. It's 200 years and it's still going on. You have to let these things play out properly. So, you know, do we want them on the grid? Yes, I'd like to see them on there with GM supplying an original um, powertrain as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, is it going to happen before 2025? No, and I think a lot would have to happen for that to, for them to be on the grid in 2025 with a customer engine. So I think we're already at the point where it's looking at 2026 as being the more realistic point 
but I want to see them on the grid. I want to see them bringing more drivers on. We need more spots for more young drivers to get into this sport because it's become a closed shop um, yeah. in terms of the teams. It's becoming a closed shop for the drivers. The sad thing is, if it's this hard for Andretti, which is a massively famous name in right. Formula One uh, with a huge engine supplier behind them, that really doesn't make my dream of a 45-car grid with lots of pre-qualifying. doesn't make it seem very viable at all. But thank you very much for your, your precious time, Peter. I will, I will have the diamond hand-delivered for you to add to your Lexus. Go and follow Peter at Digital Law UK still. On, on Twitter, Peter, and uh, we'll get you back on soon. Thank you very much. And hopefully all of you will join us live at midday on Sunday as we have a very, very uh, strange schedule. I will be up at 3 a.m. to head down to London to Tomo F1's studio where me and Brad will join them for a live watch along for what I think is a 6 a.m. start in the UK. And then we will be doing our race review at midday on Sunday. And of course, you can catch me on The Ringer with Meg as well later in the afternoon. So until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 